0: This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, a podcast from Star News Media. I am your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington, North Carolina. As always, when you're not joining me on this podcast to talk about Cape Fear history, you can find my byline on coverage of the local film and television industry, my weekly TV Hunter column, and more over at starnewsonline.com. This week, we're back to our regularly scheduled format, and we're flipping to a new chapter in our history book of persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures. Now, our subject this week is a big one, World War II. And there's no way we can encompass the entirety of the war in one episode. So we're going to parse it down by looking at Wilmington's unexpectedly robust role in the war through the lens of two stories, the port city's prisoner of war camps and the legend of a U-boat bombing on the coast. I will share the stories with you as they have been passed down through history and told through legend. And then I'm gonna bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. So settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, as we turn back time to the 1940s for a look at Wilmington and World War II. Ask any given American what war they can give you a broad history of, and most are likely to say World War II. Readily available archive footage of fighting overseas and patriotic support on the home front the proliferation of holocaust stories in popular culture, and a generation still living to tell their stories of the era, have made it possible for World War II to entrench itself in our culture more than 70 years later. The Civil War was one of the first major conflicts to be immortalized in pictures taken on the battlefield. But it was during World War II that Americans were exposed to near-constant visual updates of the war. Today, the onslaught of stories manifests itself on the big screen with sweeping epics like Dunkirk, Schindler's List, and Saving Private Ryan, and more intimate portraits like A League of Their Own, The Imitation Game, and Their Finest. This is all to say that we as a country are not lacking on a working knowledge of the Second World War. But with nearly every corner of the war already well covered in history and pop culture, we're left with one big question here in the Cape Fear region. What was Wilmington's role in the defining event of a generation. In previous episodes, we spoke briefly about Camp Davis, the military training facility in Holly Ridge that conducted exercises and stored equipment at Fort Fisher in the lead up to the war. But the region continued to play host to substantial, if not unexpected, elements of the war effort, even after Pearl Harbor pulled the country into battle. One major role that seems almost unfathomable today was its status as the site of not one, but three prisoner of war camps for German soldiers. That's right. Several hundred Nazi soldiers taken prisoner by American and allied fighters were kept here, in Wilmington, during the war. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. First, we need to set the scene of Wilmington in the region in the 1940s, when it became known as the defense capital of the state. By all accounts, Wilmington was a quiet city, in the early part of the 20th century. Despite its historically active role as an early American settlement and a vital port in the Civil War, the city had maintained a relatively quiet pace. But soon, the attributes that made it an attractive city to military forces before, its port and proximity to the Cape Fear River and the Atlantic Ocean, garnered attention once again. Just 30 or so miles away, Camp Davis was already filling out its barracks, flushing the region with thousands of soldiers. At this point, it's early 1941, and with European countries now a few years into war, the United States is inching closer to its inevitable entrance into the conflict. Around this time, the North Carolina Shipbuilding Company began setting up shop in Wilmington, employing thousands of workers tasked with building warships right on the banks of the Cape Fear. The first ship The Zebulon B. Vance, named after the state's Civil War governor, would hit the water just one day before the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. With Camp Davis soldiers using Wilmington as a getaway spot and the shipbuilding crews putting down roots, the population of the port city, which was around 33,000 just a few years prior, had swelled to 75,000, with more on the way. Some census figures have it exceeding 100,000 by 1943. An article in the February 25, 1941 edition of the Wilmington Morning Star put it bluntly quote, A transient problem far beyond anything ever experienced is literally roosting on Wilmington's doorstep. End quote. However, the activity had its benefits as well. The federal government's persistent desire to cultivate more defense work in and around Wilmington injected the region with federal dollars, which would go to fund new schools and runway expansions at Bledenthal Airfield, which is now the Wilmington International Airport. President Franklin D. Roosevelt even signed off on $1.3 million in grants to contribute to the city's expanding water and sewer infrastructure. But the expansion of the city was so substantial in such a short amount of time that the close of the war and the mass exodus of servicemen and workers would actually stunt Wilmington's upward growth in the years after, as it caught up with itself. Even in the 1940s, the fatigue of the intense war effort took a toll on Wilmington. Those who weren't fighting on the battlefield did their duty at home, adjusting their lives if it meant helping the cause. One instance where that duty was tested was the announcement a prisoner-of-war camp would be opened at what is now the intersection of Carolina Beach Road and Shipyard Boulevard. The camp and its successors are intricately detailed in Wilbur D. Jones Jr.'s book My Sentimental Journey, Memories of a Wartime Boomtown, in which he recalls his childhood living in Wilmington during World War II. The imprisoned soldiers... Part of Erwin Rommel's Africa Corps were captured in Tunisia in February 1943, and word of their impending dispatch to the Cape Fear region came soon after. They were to be employed in fertilizer plants, dairy farms, and sawmills. In accordance with the Geneva Convention, the international rules of wartime that dictated how prisoners of war were to be treated, the prisoners were to be paid 80 cents a day. Understandably, Wilmingtonians weren't so keen on the thought of Nazi soldiers sleeping down the street, even if they were behind a barbed wire fence. The Wilmington Morningstar's February 9, 1944 report on the arrival of the first 250 prisoners was written with, let's call it an editorial tone. Quote, Apparently the Nazis were happy about their new surroundings, for they went about the job of erecting army cots and other duties of repairing the internment camp in an energetic manner. It was not all work for them, however, for one prisoner tossed one of the section's cockleburrs at another, who dodged and laughed. Another German chinned himself to an acting bar erected between two pine trees. An American officer predicted the Nazis would have the camp pretty home-like soon, by flowers being planted about the barracks, mess hall, and dispensary. End quote. While the criticism in print and between neighbors didn't fade with time, the POWs were still the attraction to see in Wilmington. The government made great efforts to detract from those sightseeing trips to the camp, but local residents still had to get a glimpse. Jones says the prisoners, while disliked by the locals, were appreciated by the local employers who got good, cheap labor out of them. Jones even suggests the detainees liked the work, because being in Wilmington meant they weren't on the battlefield and in the line of fire. Inside the camp, the POWs ranged in age from 17 to 42, according to a Wilmington Morning Star report. And only a fifth spoke English. Newspaper reporters of the day kept constant tabs on the camps, as rumors began to circulate wildly that the prisoners were slipping out at night. Claims the military repeatedly denied. Some stories of the time even suggest that the German prisoners, although always accompanied by armed guards and identified by a P and a W on their clothes, sometimes received better treatment than Wilmington's own black residents, as this was still the age of segregation. If true, this paints a shocking picture of white Wilmington residents giving favor to Hitler's soldiers over their own neighbors. Eventually, The camp at Carolina Beach Road was bursting at the seams with nearly 300 men. So the military set out to secure another location and identified the old Marine Hospital between 8th and 10th Streets near Ann Street in downtown Wilmington. It had been used as the hospital during the First World War. The government leased the four-block property in 1942, constructing 11 buildings on the site that briefly housed the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. Despite objections from the surrounding residents, and even for a period the city council, the government moved the prisoners to the site in October 1944, citing it was a more central location for transporting the POWs to their work details. A third camp was also formed at Bledenthal Air Base, where a small group of POWs were housed to work in the mess halls. At the larger downtown site, the POW population swelled to over 500, with more local farmers and employers seeking to use the prisoners as labor. Jones says they even assisted with the city's mosquito control program. The new camp was within sight of Williston High School and Williston Primary School, meaning children could see the prisoners in the yard. Jones cites one woman who said her teacher would occasionally let the children give the POWs candy and talk to them through the fence during recess, something the city and the government strongly advised against. Jones himself said that he's skeptical of any rumors of escapes, as no official record exists. Despite those fears, he said the generally good behavior displayed by the POWs actually calmed anxieties over their placement, and the residents grew accustomed as much as they could, to their presence. Those easing tensions came as the war was ending. In his book, Jones mentions the POWs had access to radios and newspapers, so they knew the latest on the crumbling Third Reich. And some worried what would happen when Germany finally fell. Would the POWs revolt? Would they slink in fear for their own lives? Whatever happened, measures were said to be in place, to handle any reaction. Ultimately, it all proved unnecessary when, on May 8, 1945, the Allied powers declared victory over Germany. The prisoners took the news in stride, having expected the end was near. At their peak, there were more than 550 POWs housed in Wilmington, and they continued to work despite the end of Hitler's reign. In January 1946, President Harry S. Truman declared all POWs on American soil would be sent back home by June. In the following months, Wilmington's population of Germans dwindled little by little. Jones says some wanted to stay and build a life in Wilmington, and some of the employers didn't want to lose the labor. But by April 12, 1946, they were all gone. The POW camp downtown was sold back to the city, and the buildings were dismantled. Today, the site is home to Robert Strange Park. Wilmington's POW camps might be a peculiar part of its past, but it's a matter of record. Wilmington residents live with this as a reality for more than two years. But there's another glaring story from this time period that's been up for debate for seven decades. This one, which we will discuss further with our guest later in the episode, is the legend of a U-boat bombing off of Curry Beach that, if true, is said to be the only time the East Coast was fired upon during World War II. The legend goes that on the night of July twenty-fifth, 1943, a German U-boat lurking off the coast emerged and fired upon the Ethel dow chemical plant. The facility extracted bromine from the seawater and used it as a component in aviation fuel. Residents in the area claimed to hear the sudden sound of artillery fire before the coast fell silent. The next morning, they shared their stories of what they heard and confusion over what it meant. Had the war made its way stateside? It wasn't out of the realm of possibility. Authorities had already prepared residents for the threat of spying and offshore surveillance by enforcing blackout curtains and limited lights on their homes at night to ensure U-boats couldn't identify the coastline. Long-circulated stories of the incident claim shells were fired at the plant but missed the target and likely landed in the Cape Fear River, where some claim they remain today. The legend has its many detractors with several Navy officers who did their own research, claiming an attack on a single target by a lone U-boat would have been rare, and vessel logs from Germany show no boats in the vicinity that night. Helping reinforce the legend is the fact that the North Carolina Shipbuilding Company went completely dark just after midnight, which is said to be the only time that happened during the entire war. Was it a coincidence? or was it due to a perceived threat lurking off the coast in the cover of night? Regardless of what actually happened that night, the U-boat incident shows the unease that still persisted in the Cape Fear region and the country as the war carried on. Wilmington might not have been a full-fledged war zone, but as a temporary home to Nazi prisoners and the possible site of a midnight bombing, it certainly wasn't spared from the touch of the Second World War Joining me now is Dr. Ev Smith, and he is a local historian who has done plenty of research into World War II here in Wilmington. Thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. So I want to start out because I've just given our listeners a primer to the two stories that we talked about this week, but also World War II in Wilmington and one thing that has really struck me both in writing that this episode and just kind of researching it is there's a shocking lack of pictures or at least documentation of not only just the POW camps, but some of the activities even here in Wilmington. And I'm curious, what's your theory on that? Why, why do you feel like there there's not as much evidence as you'd think from such a highly publicized war?
1: Probably the place to begin there is to mention that in World War II, all forms of media were censored. The censorship for the most part was voluntary and it was self-administered, but it was very real censorship nonetheless. It certainly applied to the four papers that were published in Wilmington in those days, the Star, the News, the Journal, and the Post. It also applied to the radio station, uh, WMFD, and... I suspect, too, that many people at that time simply didn't want to take photographs of things associated with the war effort because they thought it might be wrong or they might put themselves on the wrong side of the authorities. Uh, That would certainly be true in the case of the prison camps. You would not want to be seen with a camera uh, photographing that.
0: They didn't want people around those anyway.
1: They didn't want them around anyway, although lots of people came. Yeah. Perhaps, too, it also applied to the programs at the USO uh, and to the various activities that were going on in Wilmington. I've noticed the same thing. There are very few photographs out there and not a lot of documentation with regard to some of these topics that we would dearly love to know more about.
0: And you did a lot of research into the USO building, uh, you know, the the Hanna Block Center that's on uh, 2nd Street now, and there was even a lack of photos for that, something that so many people came to.
1: We can document that there were 2,388,000 visitors in that building over a five-year period. I'm not aware of anything more than half a dozen pictures that were ever taken, and those were made by the lead agency, the YMCA, at the end of the war when they sent photographers around to document some of the activities that were taking place. But as far as photos taken by the participants, uh, photos taken by the hostesses, you would think there would be swarms of those. Never found a one.
0: Wow. You kind of just want to go back and tell everyone to be just a little rebellious and bring out a camera or something just so we have a little bit of a visual.
1: And uh, go up in the attic, if you will, and search out those old photo albums. You you might be making a greater contribution to local history than you realize. Exactly,
0: yeah. If any of our listeners have any photos of their, their family members in any of these events or anything during World War II, um, I imagine Dr. Smith here and anyone who's studying history in the area would love to see them. Indeed. So what do we know about that night in July? You know, is there any anything for sure, is there any fact about that U-boat incident that we ha- that I told our listeners?
1: One of the surprising things about this incident is how little factual information there really is. There's anecdotal evidence that there was an alert. There's anecdotal evidence that the North Carolina Shipbuilding Company, down on the Cape Fear River, actually closed down its operations briefly. Normally, they operated around the clock and they were fully illuminated, but according to the story, that night they shut down. And, of course, you have the various so-called eyewitness accounts of uh, people having witnessed the submarine bombardment. But, to my knowledge, there's not a single letter. There's no diary. There are no official documents from either the Ethel Dow plant or the shipbuilding company. Nothing that you can really point to to indicate what really happened that evening. So... Where does
0: where does the story then start? You know, does it start with those community members that starts with, you know, people hearing sounds and and then kind of inferring things or or what kind of gave birth to this story?
1: Interestingly enough, it was a story in the Morning Star in March of 1946. And at that time, uh, rumors presumably had been circulating for a long time but there had been so many alerts so many blackout tests so many civil defense measures and other things of this sort during the war years that when people tried to think back three years or so they understandably became confused about what they had heard at what time and what went on at what time at what time so the story appears to be a confirmation but it doesn't appear to have been based on any actual documentary evidence that emerged at that time other than a letter that apparently had been written by a young man who had worked at the Ethel dow plant then after that plant closed he was transferred to the other plant in michigan that made the same product and there he had encountered a former pilot who claimed that he had been the one who sank the sub the day afterwards unfortunately the pilot's name was never revealed and so although the story sounds very circumstantial very detailed it gave an exact date and the circumstances of what went on again there's very little in the way of factual information that we have had up until recent times uh, to be able to tell what actually happened that night Uh, it would have been complicated of course by the fact that trying to research the german records in those days would have been an extremely difficult proposition You'd have to have gone to Washington, certainly, maybe even to Germany. You would have to have spoken German, and you would have had to plow through all kinds of primary source records. It's only in modern times that a lot of the German records have been put online, and therefore nowadays we can be reasonably sure in terms of what German subs were doing back in July of 1943.
0: Would it have been out of the ordinary for a U-boat to be off of our coast that night?
1: in july of 1943 most submarines had been pulled out of the atlantic Mm -hmm. the war was going badly for germany and the united states countermeasures were becoming increasingly effective the loss rate was accelerating for german subs and so therefore the german navy had made a decision a month or two prior to the time that this incident is supposed to have occurred to pull most of its subs out of the Atlantic and redirect them down to the Caribbean, where they felt the pickings would be greater. Hmm. So, as a result of that, in July of 1943, there are only two submarines Mm -hmm. that we know about that could possibly have undertaken a mission of this kind. And the records exist that conclusively prove that neither of them was off the coast of North Carolina that night. What, what was the importance of this particular plant that is said to have been involved? The ethyl Dow bromine extraction plant, as it was officially called, was run by the Dow Chemical Company. Mm-hmm. It operated from 1934 to 1946 down at Curry Beach. And it was a plant that used a very novel and elegant chemical process to separate a chemical from seawater that was refined into a product called ethylene dibromide. That product was used as a minor ingredient in the leaded gasoline of that era. The plant, however, produced a product that was only used in very small quantities. Furthermore, there was another plant in Michigan that produced the same product by a different chemical process. So, even if the Dow chemical plant had been completely destroyed, there's no real evidence that it would have impacted the war effort in a dramatic way. Basically, there's no reason for the Germans to have dispatched a sub all the way across the Atlantic for the purpose of trying to get rid of it.
0: I read in, in a few accounts, you know, in this story, the, the shells that would have been shot at it uh, missed and went in the Cape Fear River. Is that kind of another part of this legend that they might still be out there if, if this was the case that it happened?
1: It would um, take a miracle, in my opinion, to yeah. try to recover anything that was fired into the Cape Fear River or over into Brunswick County. Uh, the river's been dredged many times since then, and a lot of the fill that is taken out of the river is, just has been placed on the Brunswick uh, County side of the river. So the chances of actually finding anything of that sort would be very slim, assuming, of course, that there was any reality to the story to begin with.
0: Well, that's just kind of like any pirate treasure story, one of which we've told on this show before. The excitement of that type of story is that it's still out there, you know, yes. it's it's never been found, so the possibility is still there. So now I want to move up the coast a little bit and talk about the prisoner of war camps that I spoke to our listeners about earlier in the episode. When I was researching this podcast, I found it just so fascinating to think about that element of war being right here in Wilmington, to have prisoners of war, German Nazis here in Wilmington, while you're at the height of the war and having them interact with the community and having the community know they're here, that's just so hard to wrap your head around now, uh, you know, some 70 years later. Is it a matter of fact that those POW camps were here?
1: Oh, Yes. There were three camps in this region, Mm -hmm. two of them in Wilmington. Mm -hmm. One was the successor of the other when it grew to a size where it couldn't be accommodated at its original location. There was also a small prisoner of war camp up at Camp Davis.
0: Why this area? What, What was the reasoning that we had POW camps here?
1: During World War II, the agricultural segment of the American economy was having difficulty because farmers simply couldn't locate workers to work down on the farm. They were all in the military so at the same time that this problem was developing the united states had inherited a quarter of a million german prisoners from the operations that had concluded recently in tunisia Mm -hmm. so according to the geneva convention which dictated the way you could and could not treat prisoners and which the united states scrupulously observed they could be used in agricultural jobs which were not directly related to the war effort. So the farmers inherited a workforce from the prison camps. The prisoners actually spent very little time in the camps because they were out on the farms and also in the local fertilizer industry and were spending most of their day uh, in supervised situations, but situations where they were out in the open and working down on the farm.
0: So that's what a day for a POW uh, prisoner here, I mean, uh, POW here in Wilmington, would have been kind of like a a, a day of labor, a day on a, on a farm here, a day you know working in a mill if it if it came to that. Um, and that's just kind of fascinating that you you know during the height you know the height of at least U.S. involvement in the war, we we had you know, prisoners here in from Germany working in our fields.
1: And many of them made a very favorable impression, too. They were hard workers. A lot of them came from farming backgrounds themselves, and they formed very close relationships with the people they worked for, which in some cases survived after the war when the prisoners themselves were repatriated to Germany.
0: Wow. I read in uh, Wilbur Jones's book, uh, My Sentimental Journey, that they had some, they, they liked Working here because it was better than being on the battlefield. Oh, definitely.
1: They were happy to be out of the war.
0: Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And here in Wilmington, it was much slower pace. So it's uh, probably uh, quite different from what they had back in Germany.
1: Well, a great number of these uh, prisoners had fought with Rommel and Mm -hmm. other German commanders in the desert. And at least some of them were members of the famous Africa Corps. And so after you had spent time in that environment fighting a war, uh, Wilmington must have looked pretty much like a paradise. I
0: bet it did. Would it have been odd to have prisoner of war camps in towns uh, during the war or were, you know, these these POWs that were inherited um, disseminated to other towns and other states?
1: There were small prisoner of war camps all over. Mm-hmm. And one of the purposes of the program seems to have been to deliberately expose these prisoners to the United States and to the American way of life in a hope that they would be able to overcome the decade of propaganda that they had uh, been uh, uh, subjected to in Germany. And so these camps were basically all over wherever there was a need and wherever there was agriculture with uh, workers that uh, needed uh, to be placed on the farm.
0: Just like the U-boat incident, there were rumors that circulated about these these POW camps. What are some of the ones I know a main one is that they would get loose and, and go out into the town?
1: The German prisoners who were here were not regarded as a security threat. The government had separated out all of the fanatical nazis mm-hmm. and they kept them in very high security environments the prisoners here were off and out and around anyway a few of them seem to have tried to escape not so much because they really had any hopes of getting back to germany but simply to prove that they could
0: it have been a long journey to get back to germany from wilmington yeah, certainly so.
1: would have and they were much better off here but there are stories of prisoners having gotten loose the main prison camp was located in what is now robert strange park Mm -hmm. and that's right across the street from what was at that time williston high school and williston primary school and there are stories of school children uh, who witnessed prison breaks and watched while soldiers ran through the streets trying to punt them back down there's no indication that any german prisoner ever escaped Mm -hmm. Um, but there is a lot of anecdotal evidence, which I find quite convincing, that breaks did occur and that every once in a while the prisoners would get out uh, just to roam the streets for a little while and uh, demonstrate that uh, the security was not perfect.
0: Just testing their limits, I
1: guess. Testing the limits, yes.
0: So one of the rumors I I was told by several people, actually, a couple months ago, actually, before I'd even planned to do this episode, uh, was that the the way these prisoners would interact with the local community, uh, they would sometimes be in stores. I mean, they would have, obviously, armed guards with them. But is there any truth to them receiving better treatment than some of the black citizens here in town?
1: Yes, that I think is a matter of documented fact. Mm -hmm. It was certainly the perception in the black community. And I think... You could probably find instances of it also in the newspapers of the time it wasn't something that was dwelt upon but there were apparently a few white storekeepers who would actually give precedence to the german prisoners who were being brought into the store and keep their black customers waiting possibly that was simply because they wanted to get the germans out of the way as quickly as possible
0: well and looking at it now it doesn't seem like that would have been considering that was the age of segregation so that's just that's another facet of this that you know you have Nazis in town during World War II and how they kind of interact with the community is is really fascinating just to kind of think about even if some of them are uh, rumors and some of them aren't
1: when the um, prisoners returned to Germany in 1946 when the last of them departed the uh, news actually had an editorial which said that it struck three blows to repatriate them one was to the members of this community uh one was to the community itself and the third was to the prisoners many of whom would have preferred to stay
0: to this day wilmington still sells itself pretty well (laughs) so i guess we can understand that at least um i want to i want to wrap up by talking a little bit uh, more broadly about why was it significant for wilmington to be part of this war
1: some of the reason why wilmington became a center of home front activity was simply because it was out of the way and isolated. There was a lot of empty space in those days. Several military bases were founded in this region, as you know, Camp Davis, Camp Lejeune, Fort Bragg out in Fayetteville. And because of that, this tiny little community, which at that time was only about 30,000 people, bore a much greater responsibility for the war effort than Mm -hmm. a lot of communities that were many times its size. The military presence was so overwhelming in this area that it required extraordinary measures to overcome it. And for the most part, Wilmington met that challenge. In the lectures that I used to give, I used to describe World War II as the greatest accomplishment of Wilmington in the 20th century. And the farther we get away from that time period, I think the more truth that there is to that
0: and it's it's something that other people recognize now. I think the significance of it, and and so there's a, at least an effort, I think, to you know to fortify that that status of significance.
1: As I'm sure you know, Wilbur Jones has been trying for a number of years to get uh, Wilmington declared America's first World War II city, mm-hmm. and my understanding is that that is coming very close to realization now, and that would provide us with some degree of recognition on the national scale, which we certainly didn't get at the time. Yeah and, to my way of thinking, very well deserved.
0: It's uh, We have some fascinating stories that come out of that time period here in Wilmington. Uh, so thank you so much for talking about them with me today. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of Wilmington during the Second World War. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode where we will explore another tale from the history books. Until then, be sure to share your thoughts on this week's episode on Twitter with the hashtag CF or you can email me your thoughts at CapeFear_Unearth at gmail.com. I'd also advise everyone to join our Facebook group where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own thoughts and memories of the region's history. In that group, I will also be posting extra content as the season progresses. This week, I'm going to be posting some of the pictures that I've found of Wilmington during World War II. But as Dr. Smith and I discussed, there aren't that many, so be sure to check out what I could find. You can join that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. Finally, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me. Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish, and this episode was recorded at WHQR Studios in downtown Wilmington, which has been gracious enough to host us this season. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream the show, so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review while you're there, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next week, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you.